This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First and Last by Hilaire Belloc Chapter 38 On a Great Wind It is an old dispute among men, or rather a dispute as old as mankind, whether will be a cause of things or no. Nor is there anything novel in those moderns who affirm that will is nothing to the matter, save their ignorant belief that their affirmation is new. The intelligent process whereby I know that will not seems but is, and can alone be truly and ultimately a cause, is fed with stuff and strengthens sacramentally, as it were, whenever I meet and I am made the companion of a great wind. It is not that this lively creature of God is indeed perfected with a soul. This would be superstition to believe. It has no more of a person than any other of its material fellows. But in its vagary of way, in the largeness of its apparent freedom, in its rush of purpose, it seems to mirror the action of mighty spirit. When a great wind comes roaring over the eastern flats toward the North Sea, driving over the fens and the ringland, it is like something of this island that must go out and wrestle with the water, or play with it in a game or a battle, and when upon the western shores the clouds come bowling up from the horizon, messengers, outriders, or comrades of a gale, it is something of the sea determined to possess the land. The rising and falling of such power, its hesitations, its renewed violence, its fatigue and final repose, all these are symbols of a mind, but more than all the rest, its exultation. It is the shouting and the hurrahing of the wind that suits a man. Note you, we have not many friends. The older we grow and the better we can sift mankind, the fewer friends we count. Although man lives by friendship, but a great wind is every man's friend, and its strength is the strength of good fellowship, and even doing battle with it is something worthy and well chosen. If there is cruelty in the sea, and terror in high places, and malice lurking in profound darkness, there is no one of these qualities in the wind, but only power. Here is strength too full for such negations as cruelty, as malice, or as fear, and that strength in a solemn manner proves and tests health in our own souls. For with terror, of the sort I mean, terror of the abyss or panic at remembered pain, and in general a losing grip of the succors of the mind, and with malice, and with cruelty, and with all the forms of that evil which lies in wait for men, there is the savour of disease. It is an error to think of such things as powers set up in equality against justice and right living. We were not made for them, but rather for influences large and soundly poised. We are not subject to them, but to other powers that can always enliven and relieve. It is health in us, I say, to be full of heartiness and of joy of the world, and of whether we have such health our comfort in a great wind is a good test indeed. No man spends his day upon the mountains when the wind is out 
riding against it or pushing forward on foot through the gale, but at the end of his day feels that he has had a great host about him. It is as though he had experienced armies. The days of high winds are days of innumerable sounds, innumerable in variation of tone and of intensity, playing upon and awakening innumerable powers in man, and the days of high winds are days in which a physical compulsion has been about us, and we have met pressure and blows, resisted and turned them. It enlivens us with the simulacrum of war by which nations live, and in the just pursuit of which men in companionship are at their noblest. It is pretended sometimes, less often perhaps now than a dozen years ago, that certain ancient pursuits congenial to man will be lost to him under his new necessities. Thus men sometimes talk foolishly of horses being no longer ridden, houses no longer built of wholesome wood and stone, but of metal, meat no more roasted but only baked, and even of stomachs grown too weak for wine. There is a fashion of saying these things, and much other nastiness. Such talk is, thank God, mere folly, for man will always at last tend to his end, which is happiness, and he will remember again to do all those things which serve that end. So it is with the uses of the wind, and especially the using of the wind with sails. No man has known the wind by any of its names who has not sailed his own boat and felt life in the tiller. Then it is that a man has most to do with the wind, plays with it, coaxes or refuses it, is wary of it all along, yields when he must yield, but comes up and pits himself again against its violence, trains it, harnesses it, calls it if it fails him, denounces it if it will try to be too strong, and in every manner conceivable handles this glorious playmate. As for those who say that men did but use the wind as an instrument for crossing the sea, and that sails were mere machines to them, either they have never sailed, or they were quite unworthy of sailing. It is not an accident that the tall ships of every age, of varying fashions, so arrested human sight, and seemed so splendid. The whole of man went into their creation, and they expressed him very well, his cunning and his mastery, and his adventurous heart. For the wind is in nothing more capitally our friend than in this, that it has been, since men were men, their ally in the seeking of the unknown, and in their divine thirst for travel, which in its several aspects, pilgrimage, conquest, discovery, and in general enlargement, is one prime way whereby man fills himself with being. I love to think of those Norwegian men who set out eagerly before the northeast wind, when it came down from their mountains in the month of March, like a god of great stature, to impel them to the west. They pushed their long keels out upon the rollers, grinding the shingle of the beach at the fjord head. They ran down the calm narrows. They breasted and they met the open sea. Then, for days and days, they drove under this master of theirs, and high friend, having the wind for a sort of captain, and looking always out to the sea-line, to find what they could find. It was the springtime, and men feel the spring upon the sea, even more surely than they feel it upon the land. They were men whose eyes, pale with the foam, 
watched for a landfall, that unmistakable good sight which the wind brings us to, the cloud that does not change, and that comes after the long emptiness of sea days, like a vision after the sameness of our common lives. To them, the land they so discovered was wholly new. We have no cause to regret the youth of the world, if indeed the world were ever young. When we imagine in our cities that the wind no longer calls us to such things, it is only our reading that blinds us, and the picture of satiety which our reading breathes is wholly false. Any man today may go out and take his pleasure with the wind upon the high seas. He also will make his landfalls today, or in a thousand years, and the sight is always the same, and the appetite for such discoveries is wholly satisfied, even though he be only sailing, as I have sailed, over seas that he has known from childhood, and come upon an island far away, mapped and well known, and visited for the hundredth time. The End of Chapter 38